0: If you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John 18, uh, picking off, uh, picking up off of last week's message, uh, where we saw Jesus arrested in the garden. Uh, this week, the kind of the beginning of, if you will, his trial. Um, though I think we'll kind of see some of that's a little sketch as well, but. Um, John uses this, uh, this tool of contrast uh, a lot throughout his gospel. We've seen it um, in other times. We've seen John use the contrast of uh, light and dark, good and evil. We've seen the, the contrast of those who are following and receiving Jesus and those who are rejecting it. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, John gives us a picture of uh, the essence of Jesus' whole ministry, that his ministry is one built on this contrast, that the light has come and shone in the darkness, but the darkness hasn't overcome it. This contrast uh, is such a helpful way for us to grasp this picture of what's going on. It's, it's something that we use even today. So I ran across this picture uh, this week of this a flower... That's set in contrast, right? So you have a whole black and white picture and the the contrast of this one color standing out in its full glory in this beautiful yellow. And uh, the photographer who took this picture and did all the editing, whoever that was, um, obviously it was their desire to draw our attention uh, not to the whole bouquet of flowers, but to that one flower in the middle. Uh, And so they add that color to make it pop right off the the screen. That As you look at it, you can't help but your eyes are drawn right to that very thing. We're surrounded by this kind of contrast in our lives on a regular basis. Now, maybe we're not seeing black and white images anymore with color thrown in there, but we see it in the stories we read, in the movies that we watch. We see it um, as authors and uh, directors try to highlight the contrast between the good and the evil. Right? You've all read a story or been uh, engrossed in a story where you know the characters that you're not supposed to like. Right, they are presented in a way that you're like, I don't like that guy, and, and something about them uh, doesn't sit well with us. And in the opposite, you've got these people that seem to only pre- be presented in ways you are drawn to them. That your affection grows uh, for them throughout the the telling of the story, and we see that um, even here in this passage. And as I uh, was thinking about this. Uh, message this morning, I was taken back to uh, earlier in John's Gospel in chapter twelve when we talked about uh, the anointing of Jesus' feet, right? Because we talked about the contrast there as well between uh, Mary and Judas, and and here John kind of brings that contrast to bear again as we look at uh, the difference mainly between Jesus and Peter, but uh, even some greater contrast as well. And so uh, this morning, I want to look at some of those contrasts with us, and then kind of conclude with some thoughts uh, near. The end, and so um, I want to look at this character contrast, if you will, uh, between Peter and between Jesus uh, throughout this narrative. John uh, here tied together in one timeline, tied together in in one uh, story surrounding one event, and that this person Jesus. He weaves together these two narratives. And You've got this narrative of Peter that we see uh, denying Jesus, and we've got this narrative of Jesus uh, being questioned by the high priest. And, and in this contrast, this weaving together, um, we set that backdrop, if you will, the, the gray scale that's in the back, uh, which is this, this contrast of compromise. Right? And we see compromise come up, and it's easy to look at our passage and think only of Peter. Right? Peter's the guy who compromises. Peter's the one who doesn't live up. But uh, this compromise is much more broad as we look at the verses that are ahead of us because the Jews have compromised quite a bit to put us here in the first place. They've stepped out of bounds with uh, what is expected and required of them in this uh, proceeding, this, this trial of Jesus. And so uh, we see that they're doing this because really they're, they're on a bit of a time crunch, if we're honest. You ever felt that pressure um, when you you're, you got time fighting against you and so you start to think of all the ways that you can cut some corners uh, so you can get done what you need to get done in the right amount of time? Well, in many ways, that's exactly uh, what the Jewish leadership is doing here—they're on a time crunch, wanting to deal with Jesus and get him out of the way, if you will, before the all the the festival of this Passover festival begins. And so they're they're cutting some corners here. They've arrested him in the middle of the night, as we talked about last week. Um, here we see that they've brought him to Annas first, who's not even the acting high priest, but uh, in the Jewish world the high priestly office was one that was held for life. So here they're bringing him, much like our presidents, right? We call former presidents president so-and-so, even though they're not currently sitting in the office, right? And that's the same way they kind of viewed the high priestly office. So here they bring him to Annas, the high priest, but he's not the one who's acting. And so probably, probably doing this with the intent to try to manipulate Jesus into saying something that could be used against him, Uh, in his trial later on. Uh, They questioned Jesus uh, directly, which would have been outside their parameters. Uh, Their customs would have been to bring witnesses and to uh, make their decisions based on the testimony of witnesses. Uh, And yet here we find them asking Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching as we see in verse 19. In other words, I think what we're getting at, or what they're trying to get at, is this understanding of what Jesus is really all about. So here, if they take Jesus out of the picture, uh, what kind of following does he really have? What things has he been teaching them? And we'll see uh, from Jesus' response that he's saying, My my teaching has been consistent behind closed doors and in the public sphere. I'm not raising up a a revolt here. They ask him about his teaching, wondering, is he leading people astray? Is he teaching false doctrines? What's his message at its core? But they never bring to bear the witnesses. They don't go and and bring his disciples. They don't go and bring any of the people who have heard him uh, teach in the temples or the synagogues. They go directly to him. So we have that kind of, that whole picture, this cutting of the corners, right? This compromising on the behalf of the religious leaders that's kind of set as the backdrop uh, for these two narratives that are woven together uh, in Peter and in Jesus. So as we look at Peter. I'm going to be honest, in some ways, we're going to be kind of hard on Peter today. John doesn't exactly hold a lot of punches. Um, Like we said last week, sometimes it seems like John likes to poke fun at Peter and paint him in bad light. But I recognize that as we talk about Peter throughout this whole story, we're not going to have a whole lot of positive things right here to say. That doesn't define Peter, though. Peter's involvement with the church, Peter's involvement with the disciple of Christ is much broader than just the passage that we're at hand today. And so in a, in a spirit of fairness to our brother, I want to recognize the fact that here in the, in the middle of the night during this trial, while he's not painted in good light and while the things that we're going to address about Peter are many of his shortcomings, Peter is one of two disciples that John tells us actually show up. Where are the rest of the guys? They're gone. They fled. We don't know where they're at. But we're told that Peter and one other, this other disciple, probably John, are the only ones that are actually there. So in a spirit of fairness, I'm going to say, at least you showed up. You're there. You're here. Now, when you show up, you trip up a little bit yourself. But, uh, And we see... Throughout this whole scene, in in essence, in this contrast, in Peter's compromise, kind of a display of fickleness. A display of fickleness, right? Because last week we talked about uh, Peter, and he enters scene with a dagger, and he cuts a guy's uh, ear off in in this uh, fit of passion, if you will, trying to defend Jesus. And now, just a few hours later, we've got Peter uh, standing in the background and hiding. Right? Denying that he even knows Jesus. So you've got these, these two kind of extremes in the person of Peter. And so when I talk about his fickleness, what I'm talking about is this change in his, uh, let's call it his, his loyalties for a minute. All right, where on one hand he is sold out, uh, going to bat for Jesus in the face of hundreds of Roman soldiers, and the next minute, uh, answering to a servant girl, he's denying that he even knows him. So you've got these, these two contrasts in the person of Peter that, that really what we're seeing is that in, in Peter's life right now, there's a level of inconsistency. There's a level of inconsistency through and through. Now, one minute he's there, one minute sold out, the next minute he's sitting back and sitting out. One minute he's charging ahead, sword in hand, and the next minute he's cowering back and trying to sink into the crowd, if you will. But while Peter's fickleness is easy to point at, easy to identify here in this passage, let's stop for a minute and recognize that we're all prone to a level of fickleness in our walk with the Lord. We're all prone to a level of change. We're, man, one minute... We might be nailing it. One minute we might be walking faithfully uh, with the Lord, and the next minute we're trying to get up after our legs have been cut out from underneath us, and we're like, what just happened? There's inconsistency in our own lives, where sometimes we ride those waves of emotional or spiritual highs, where one minute we we are soaring on the wings like eagles, and the next minute we are like, man, this is the driest valley and desert that I've ever known. And there's change in our lives. Sometimes we have uh, seasons where man, we are getting into the Word and and spending a great deal of time meditating on God's Word and studying it and letting it resonate with our hearts and our souls. And then we'll go through seasons where maybe the busyness of our schedules uh, kind of weed that out. And and for a time, we're hardly ever in the Word. And the same could be said about our prayer lives. Right Where there's times where perhaps where we are devoted and committed to coming before the throne of grace, recognizing the importance and significance of doing something like that, and then we might be be sucked into the season where we are it's easier for us in essence to try to go about it on our own strength and our own wisdom, and we kind of neglect going there and, and these things can happen for a whole host of reasons, and the list could go on where if we took an examination of our own hearts, I think we would find that we struggle with consistency from time to time. We struggle to remain faithful day in and day out. But fickleness is not the defining feature of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And aren't we glad for that? Aren't you glad for that? Because if it was, man, how, uh, how convicted would it be to sit here and be like, oh, all I am is an inconsistent person. There, there's no good in essence. That the fickleness of Peter doesn't define his discipleship. His inconsistencies don't rule him out of the game because it's not based on us. Now, I want you to hear me. Because in no way, in no way am I excusing our inconsistencies. In no way am I excusing Peter's inconsistencies. As followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians we ought to grow out of that fickleness. We ought to grow out of those inconsistencies. That as we walk with Christ, we become more and more consistent. That we see those inconsistencies uh, dwindle in their frequency and dwindle, if you will, in their severity. That that the, the fluctuations aren't so often and aren't so extreme. That as we walk further down this path of discipleship, Those things should weed themselves out. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that where sin is increased, grace abounds all the more. Because I recognize that this week, I sat here and was like, man, I certainly feel like I resonate more with Peter at times than I do with Jesus. But I can flip on the turn of a dime at moments in my life. That I recognize where I struggle with consistencies. Where I struggle to live things out. And in one breath, I'm sold out. And then in the next, I'm struggling. And I'm thankful that we serve a gracious and merciful God. A God who's full of compassion and mercy. But the irony of the Christian faith, if you will, is that as we grow, And for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, you're probably familiar with it, as we grow and grow in our knowledge and understanding of just how amazing God is, as we grow in our understanding of His holiness and His perfection, and even as we see those inconsistencies start to dwindle, man, we become more and more repulsed by the little things that we see in our own lives, our own shortcomings, and so as we grow, we may feel even like those smaller uh, fluctuations in our walk feel like the worst thing in the world. So I want to encourage you to lean heavily on the grace and mercy of our Lord. But here, uh, as we look at Peter, we see this. We see this display of fickleness um, here in John chapter 18 in the final hours of Jesus' life. We also see that his compromise uh, leads him to the denial of a friend. Denial of a friend. Now, I kind of have a hard time believing that in these moments as Jesus uh, is denied by Peter, as he sits there and he he denies following him, he denies knowing him, I I have a hard time believing that it's because Peter in these moments just suddenly is disgusted by Jesus. I have a hard time believing it's because he doesn't like Jesus at all. But his compromise here leads him to a place where he denies him. He denies uh, that he follows him. And again, I want to stop because this brings to mind you know, passages like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, that whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. And again, I want to draw our attention back to the mercy of God. Because here, we see that Peter... Denies knowing, him. and in some ways, I try to put myself in the scene, and I try to get in the mind of Peter. And while we we know that he fails in this circumstance, I maybe I wonder. I wonder if there's not a little bit of him that's looking at Jesus on trial, knowing how Jewish trials are supposed to go. They ought to call uh, witnesses uh, against Jesus. They ought to call people who stand uh, to testify about what he's said and done. And and I wonder if there's not a little bit of Peter that's sitting here watching Jesus on trial right before him and being asked if you're one of his disciples. Aren't you one of the guys that spent time with him? And you're like, the last thing I want, I, I failed him in the garden. I went out there and cut some guy's ear off, and he said, you, you've stepped out of line from the mission that I'm on, and now I wonder, I just wonder if there's a little bit of Peter listening. the last thing I want to do is step in Jesus' way again. I don't want to be called to the stand. I don't want to have to have my words be used against him. That's just my speculation. Something that I wonder. Because man, it, it seems hard to go from this passion to this This cowardice, if you will, uh, from one scene to the next. But either way, you cut cut it. Either way, the dice falls on this that Peter denies Jesus. He denies him. And that cuts deep. But there's many ways to deny our Lord. For Peter, it was in a public confession. But I wonder as we look at our lives, as I look at my life, that, that certainly there's other ways that I have a frequency of denying Christ. Maybe not always in the public sphere when people are asking me if I, if I know Jesus or if I'm a Christian and saying, no, I'm not. But I wonder if there's not ways in which that we go about in our attitudes and in our actions that, that deny our love for Him that deny our association for Him. Things that are seen uh, publicly and how we act that communicate to other people that our heart may not be in line with His. I wonder if there's things in our attitudes as we hold things. I mean, uh, this morning in theology class, right? We talked about uh, the significance of uh, forgiveness. I wonder if even in some of those things as we uh, harbor anger and resentment towards people neglecting to forgive, I wonder if that's a way that we deny our Savior. I wonder if we don't deny Him and what our affections are, then when we get caught up with our affections belonging uh, to the world and giving our attentions over to the world rather than uh, to Christ alone, man, I wonder if in, in those ways we deny Him. There's lots of ways for us to deny our Savior. and The Scriptures are clear that we can only serve one Master. We can only serve one master. Jesus says we can't serve God and money. The principle applies. We cannot serve God and self. We cannot serve God and pleasure. We cannot serve God and the world. We cannot serve God and people. We can serve one master. One master. And the Scriptures tell us that the condition of our hearts is made manifest in our lives. In other words... As Jesus says, you know a tree by its fruit. And so I ask myself, I'm like, man, well, it's easy, so pick and easy to look at the compromise of Peter and say, how could you? I wonder if as John is writing this, he doesn't have in mind all those who may think that. dude, I've got it all together. I'm doing pretty good. And then to stop and say, man, I'm sure I'm glad that Jesus went to the cross. Because I wonder that if in in that moment, Peter was learning something. I wonder if he was having some of those aha moments. His compromise caused him to deny his friend. Ultimately, Peter's compromise was driven by fear. Uh, this week, uh, in our small group discussion, somebody made a comment about the irony of the whole situation. Right? As, you, as you look at this whole thing, you, here you've got uh, Jesus uh, being questioned by, by the most elite of the Jewish leaders, the, the highest authority, and you've got Peter being questioned by a servant girl at the door. And you've got this, the irony of all of these things going on here. And here you've got, as you kind of dive into that, Peter being welcomed into the high priest's courtyard because of his association with this other disciple. Probably John, could be somebody else, but probably John. And yet this other disciple doesn't seem so afraid of being associated with Jesus. I mean, if you look at the question that the servant girl asked him, you also are not one of uh, this man's disciples, are you? Seeming that it's pretty apparent that at least the other disciple is. You don't see that person, John or whoever it is, cowering in fear. And yet, here Peter is. Pete's pretty afraid in the moment. His compromise is driven by fear. Now, that could be a fear of failing Jesus again. It could be a fear of uh, having to testify against him. It could be a fear of his own uh, safety and security, that what if he gets roped into this trial? What if he's the face suffering as a result? But fear can easily begin to run the day. And when fear runs the day, we can quickly find ourselves in a place of compromise. For example, when uh, we have fear of not being in control of our circumstances, we may try to take more control and fail to trust in God. When we have the fear of the unknown of tomorrow, we have the fears of the, well, what ifs. We have fears of the consequences of our actions, whether bad or good. What what would happen to me if I stood boldly for Jesus right now? What would happen to me if I boldly lived on the teachings and claims of the Scriptures? What would happen to me if I took Jesus at His word and acted and lived my life in such a way that He has called me to? We may have these fears, but when given to fears, we find ourselves compromising. Because fear and faith don't go hand in hand together. Perfect love drives out fear, as we're told. And so we are as believers ought to bring Bring our faith to bear on our fears. When the the fears and anxieties of our lives, how how we're living things out, what tomorrow holds, when we have those concerns and we have those fears, the Scriptures tell us we need to bring faith, we need to bring the Scripture to bear on those things, to inform those fears. So the fear doesn't run rampant in our lives, but rather uh, we exercise control over it. We are called as believers. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, right? So we don't let our fears run us th- through the mud. I'm reminded of when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, about what you'll put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing in which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself philippians chapter 4 paul says the lord is at hand Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I'm reminded that, man, as we face these things in life, as we live out the circumstances of life, that we bring the Scriptures to bear, that the Scriptures call us to, to not be slaves to that. That we wouldn't be driven by fear, but that rather as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we would be driven by faithfulness. Faithfulness to the calling that He's placed before us. But yet in this moment, in this circumstance, Peter tripped up. He compromised. And for a couple of days, I mean, you ever think about this? For a couple of days, he had to sit with us. It's not like, Jesus came over in that moment right after he denied him for the third time, put his arm around him and said, dude, you're fine. It's okay. Jesus went to the cross. He went to the grave. For a few days, Peter sat with this, that the last thing that he did was deny his Lord. And you wonder if he didn't sit with that guilt and that shame, like, "How man, did I blow it. And he sits there. Luke tells us in his Gospel that as Peter denied him that third time, as the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at him. They shared a moment across that courtyard. And you start to get into the heart of Peter and you're like, man, in that moment, you're like, And so I can't separate the discipleship factor with Peter from what's going on. Because I can't help but look at this passage and see that, that man here, on the other side of this courtyard, that Jesus is being questioned by the high priest And Peter standing off to the side, denying Jesus. And in this moment, this this realization of his failure, all the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us that when Peter denied him for the third time, the rooster crowed, he lost it. That in that moment, this aha, like... And he wept. Wept. And I can't... I can't help but see that while Jesus is on trial being questioned, perhaps in some ways Jesus also is on trial in Peter's heart, that Jesus is revealing himself. That I wonder if in, the, in that moment, that it wasn't just the weight of his failure, but the realization that Jesus really is the Son of God. Because it wasn't that long ago, sitting in an upper room, that Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And I wonder if in that moment he doesn't flash back to that. He told me this was going to happen. He really is the Son of God. He really is who he says he is. And so, I I don't want to Talk about all this compromise on peter's part just to just to point the the judgmental finger at Peter, and I don't want to talk about all of it just to come down on us and be like, "Man, look how wretched we are but I, I want to stop for a moment and recognize that, as we've been called to in the scriptures before we do point the finger, and that we would stop and look at our own lives, take an examination, and realize that man, more of us are probably a lot more like Peter than we want to give. That more of us, as we do that, we will stop and recognize, as Peter did in the long run, the greatness of the mercy and grace of our Lord. We talked about forgiveness this morning. and something that um, I was thinking about as we were uh, when we talked about during the week, Bill, was that this idea that as, as we recognize the weight of what we have been forgiven, how that makes us love all the more causes us to forgive all the more. That when we see the gravity of what we have been forgiven, how great we have been forgiven, how does that not cause us to turn and say, holy cow, I'm, I'm unworthy of this. I don't deserve this. How great is the forgiveness that God has shown to me. And so, uh, following that passage we talked about in Matthew, if you were to read on, uh, when Jesus is talking about forgiving man, uh, he goes and tells this parable of the the servant who's been forgiven a great debt, but then goes out and fails to forgive uh, somebody else who owes him a lesser debt. It hits home that when we do take the examination of ourselves and realize that, man, I come up short time and time again, I wonder if Peter didn't have that moment where he realized just how bad he screwed up. How great is Jesus? Because this is the contrast that John is bringing to bear. Not so that we would sit and look at all the grayscale and just look at the grayscale, but so that the grayscale would set in contrast with the beauty of who Jesus is. And so the two narratives come together and we've got the the grayscale backdrop of Peter and the darkness of what he has done. The darkness and wickedness and the corruption of the religious leaders set in contrast with the glory of Christ. That as you read through this whole thing, you can't help but look at Jesus and be like, the one guy that seems to be getting it, that seems to be totally on track, totally in control in all of this is the one guy who's bound and changed and getting slapped across the face. The one guy who can stand confidently and stand firmly knowing full well what he's doing. Man, now you start to see the glory of Christ pop out of the circumstance. That the highlight is Jesus. The highlight here isn't so that we can rip on Peter the whole time, but that in contrast with his failures, we can see the consistency of Jesus Christ. Despite the circumstances that he was facing, uh, we see in this whole contrast, Jesus remains consistent. Jesus remains completely consistent. And so uh, we see the religious leadership fudging the process. We see uh, Peter floundering in that moment, and yet we see Jesus remaining faithful to what he has been called to. Faithful to the mission at hand. And so while he's falsely accused and he's left alone and deserted by all of his disciples, here, standing by himself, the world rejecting him, he remains faithful. And so in contrast with Peter, we see with Jesus this great display, not of fickleness, but of faithfulness that as Peter succumbs to the pressures around him, Jesus stands firm. He doesn't cower from what lies ahead. He knows exactly, and I am so struck by that in verse 4 that we talked about last week. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He doesn't cower in the face of the suffering. He doesn't cower knowing that the Father will turn His back on Him. He doesn't cower at the cross But as Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured. So Jesus remains faithful. He will drink the cup that the Father has given him. He will not back down. He will not bail out. But instead, boldly and humbly continue to move forward. Continue to execute all that is happening. And we see in his response this consistency that he has. They they ask him questions about his disciples, uh, verse 19, and his teaching. And Jesus answers them, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. So why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me when I said to them, they know what I said. And so you have this consistency in the life of Jesus that uh, behind the closed doors, what he's not saying is that he never taught his disciples behind closed doors. I think we have enough uh, firsthand testimony that we know that there was some private education going on uh, with Jesus and the guys. But what he's saying is that the things that I taught with them behind closed doors are consistent with the things that I taught in public. I've got nothing to hide. In other words, my life is an open book. I'm not rallying my disciples for some political revolution because that's, that's the heart of why the, the, the religious leaders are asking that. Because man, if they can pin Jesus on insurrection and sedition, they've got him nailed. All they've got to do is go prove that to the Romans and, and Jesus is done. Jesus is like, listen, it's an open book. And I'm struck by the confidence that Jesus can have in view of that. And again, knowing that he's all that he's about to endure, all that's about to happen, but to not be ashamed and to try to hide anything. And I think of that kind of integrity and that confidence that it brings. And i got to be honest, that I, I long for that. The man, I don't have to worry about hiding anything on my phone. I don't have to worry about going back and man, did I say something wrong? Did I did I do that wrong? That to live a life that's above reproach? The man is believers, if if we were to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, I get it, we're gonna fail. We're gonna trip up. Let's not be ashamed in trying to hide something. The Scriptures tell us that even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. They say, Have no fear of them. Not be, do not be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a, a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You know who wrote that? Peter did. And if that doesn't just get your heart pumping a little bit, Because everything that Peter writes, all the things that he says right there stand in, in, in contrast to what he did in this moment. So don't tell me that Jesus isn't teaching Peter something right now, that he's not growing, that he's not learning. This failure did not define Peter, he is learning. And I love the fact that later in his life, he could write to other believers and say, stand firm. Always give a defense to anybody who asks you for the hope that you have. And if you should suffer for doing good, glory be to God. Our brother learned a lesson. Man. So, we have a display of faithfulness in Jesus. Secondly, we have... Uh, in as you look at Jesus a, a dependency on the Father and we've talked about this so much throughout uh, John's Gospel so I don't want to belabor it here but it can't be said enough that all that Jesus said and did was from the Father all of it We're coming right off Jesus going uh, to the Father in prayer and praying that the Father would glorify Him. And so all of this, everything that we see in Jesus' life, uh, utterly dependent upon the Father. Every single bit of it. So in contrast with Peter, in contrast with Peter here, Jesus remains dependent. Rather than denying His friend, Jesus remains faithful to the Father. And finally, uh, I want to look at Jesus in His consistency. It's driven by forgiveness. It's driven by forgiveness. Because I can't help but wonder what that look was like between Jesus and Peter. I wonder, was it a look of disappointment? Sadness? Hurt? Compassion? Or some combination of all of those? Because the irony of this whole situation is here, while Peter fails so miserably, Jesus is on His way to the cross to pay for the sins that Peter is still committing. In all of this, Jesus is driven by forgiveness to go to the cross To shed his blood for the sins of many, that as he is lifted up, he may bring together many people, that we might look upon him and be saved from our sins. And because, man, in earthly terms, you look in that situation, and how easy could it be for someone like Jesus to know what your good friend just did and say, forget it? In earthly terms, in human terms, I'm out. If you only knew, if you only knew what I was going to do, you wouldn't deny me. But evidently, you're not into it. You don't want what I have to offer. So I'm out. But he pushes forward. He goes on. And so in the contrast of of Peter's compromise, you have the consistency and faithfulness of Jesus. And Jesus ought to stand out off this page like the shining glorious flower in the dark backdrop, that He is good. When and though the whole world may fail Him, He is glorious. Now despite the betrayal, despite the circumstances, despite all of that, Jesus remains faithful. So that we might look and believe in who He is. So I want to conclude with this and ask that today, as we look at our lives, perhaps who, who do we align with? Do we find ourselves compromising in our faith more or remaining consistent with the life that God has called us to? Because the consistency that we will ever display in our walk with Christ will flow from the same exact things of Jesus. A display of faithfulness, a dependency on the Father, and it will be driven by forgiveness. All of them. Because as we uh, uh, display faithfulness, I know uh, it's such the temptation for us to look for those massive uh, jumps of growth, those hilltop, those mountaintop experiences, if you will. But I wonder, as I look at the, the Scriptures That the faithfulness that we are called to as disciples is not our faithfulness in that big moment, but the faithfulness in the day-to-day, in the minute-by-minute, the hour-by-hour, that man, would we not be faithful in the mundane aspects of our life? The Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every day, being faithful to what God has called us to. Because, man, I wonder if, uh, as I look at wanting to be and desiring to be faithful in that big circumstance, I ask, if I can't be faithful in the little circumstances of the day-to-day, why would I be faithful in the big one? So I want to encourage you to, to display faithfulness in your life. Faithfulness in those little decisions, those little moments that make up the sum of life. I want to encourage you to live a life of dependency on the Father. Because man, if Jesus relied on him for all things, how much more should we? How much more should we? Jesus just said apart from me you can do nothing. So man, I encourage you to depend on him like your life depends on it. To walk closely. To listen hard. And finally, recognize that The Christian life for us is driven by forgiveness. Because we could not merit salvation on our own. It was because of Jesus remaining faithful, getting slapped in the face and questioned and mistreated and abandoned, being nailed to the cross and breathing his last and being laid in the tomb and rising again. Man, it's because of the forgiveness of our sins that we can live a life that is honoring to God. That you and I are here today So I encourage you that in those moments when you trip up and fail because they'll come call on the forgiveness and faithfulness of God. Rest in His forgiveness because it's this forgiveness that calls us to the throne of grace in our moment of need. It's this forgiveness that has called us from death to life. It doesn't look at our own righteousness but it looks at the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. And it's this forgiveness as we recognize the depth of our own sin and what we have been forgiven that will instill in you and me a righteous and holy love and awe for our God. And when we live our life driven out of that and the gratitude and love for Him, that changes how we go about the day today. Not to earn or merit, but to honor. To Him be the glory in all things.